Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am so delighted to be here. I'm Megan Reardon Jarvis, your host every week. And I have Sarah Conover here with me today. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. I listen to your podcast and I've learned a lot. You are too kind to say that. I am exploding with energy to talk to you about your book. It's the, your book that's about to come out next week. Oh, so exciting. Called Set Adrift. And I want to, before we jump into the book, I want to just give people a sense of who you are because you're going to be talking to us about early childhood trauma. And I think one of the most extraordinary things is learning you know, sort of someone's achievements and their life trajectory and yours is extraordinary to me. So I'm going to read your bio if you can tolerate that. Sarah Conover holds a BA in comparative religion from the University of Colorado and an MFA from creative writing from Eastern Washington University. She's worked as a television producer from PBS and Internews, an international media NGO a social worker for Catholic charities, a public school teacher, and taught creative writing through the community colleges of Spokane, Washington. She's the author of six books on wisdom, traditions, and spirituality published by Skinner House Books, the educational publishing arm of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Her poetry essays and interviews have been published in a variety of literary magazines and anthologies. She's a feature writer and columnist for Tricycle Magazine, The Buddhist Review, and has taught meditation for many years at Airway Heights Correction Center. This is, I'm just so excited to talk to you. You have such a broad breadth of things that you have done, and you just started out by telling me something also super fascinating. So before we even get to my first question, which is always what brings you into the world of grief and loss. Can you just tell us where in the world are you and why are you there? <laughs> okay. Um, right now I'm at Trevasti Abbey, a Tibetan monastery in the northwest, northeast corner of Washington state. And I'm here with my son, who is a Thai forest monk. He's visiting. He's starting a, a monastery in Seattle under the name of Clear Mountain Project. I'm here with him and his co-abbot, and I've been a supporter of the nuns here for over 20 years. I'm proud to say I buy their shoes. They have a standing, standing <laughs> invitation for new shoes for me, which, and believe me, they don't ask until they are completely worn out. And it's really one of the only, it's the only Tibetan Buddhist training monastery for Westerners, for men and women in the world. It's and she's she's the author of like 23 books, The Abyss to yeah. Children. Yeah. So and you're doing a, you're doing a writing project with them. I'm well. curating a book of their their noontime talks called the BBC Bodhisattva's Breakfast Corner. So the last 20 years I'm curating some of their best talks. Well, I'm writing the name of that down so that I can get my hands on that. But let's talk a little bit about your first books. I mean, the most recent book, not your first book, the most recent book, Set Adrift, that's coming out this week. And can you tell us how you come into the world of grief and loss? I think I came in darn early <laughs> at 18 months old. My sister and I was 18 months old. She's 13 months older than me. We were sort of Irish twins. My parents and grandparents vanished in the Bermuda Triangle after the worst unpredicted storm in the history of the Miami Weather Bureau at that time. I lost my parents and my grandparents. And yeah, 
And my grandfather is one of those trophied yachtsmen in the country. My father was a contender for the Olympic trials and it, you know, nobody, it was the kind of, it was catastrophic loss that went just, just unpreventable, destroyed, almost destroyed a lot of people's lives certainly did for a few people, but you know, you can look at my, in the memoir, I interview a lot of people and, you know, everybody, everybody deals with grief differently and early childhood loss is very different than what my adoptive mother experienced. She lost her, her, her hero in life, her mother and her favorite brother. Early childhood loss is a weird thing in that I, uh, there was also a 10-year custody battle. Can't forget that because I'm living out my title of my book, Set Adrift, when I was, I was set adrift, not finding a home in either place. And because you have to, you know, eventually you discover that that grief is in your cells, it's in your bones, and it's running your life. But, so it's a weird thing in that, you know, grief can be anger, it can be numbness, it can be restlessness, it can be bolting. I was in the bolting category. And then, you know, I orphaned myself. I was orphaned, but then I orphaned. I, you know, I was like, okay, I don't need you, you people. And I went off and did my own thing, but you know, it caught up with me. I, it caught up with me eventually through depression and loneliness, trying to fill that mother hole yeah. and which my sister had the same mother hole. She couldn't fill mine. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, you know, you have to kind of spiral back to it and you know, I'm very, I'm very grateful for it now. I mean, not that any, everyone died, but of course, I'm glad that I've, I've, I've sort of, in, I've integrated it in a way that I can be there for other people. I, I know I've saved the lives of several young men who felt like I, they were the only person they could tell. I was the only person they could tell that they wanted to kill themselves by suicide. I have friends who had terminal cancer and I was the person they went to. So, you know, I'm somebody who, faces it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a brutal teacher and it molds you in ways that I think we can appreciate, right? That doesn't mean that we wouldn't go back in time and change the trajectory of the profound loss, but the loss itself has these beauties that become kind of tattooed in us. The, the writing in this book is glorious. I mean, I, I, told you off mic a minute ago, I couldn't put it down. I mean, it came in, you You guys were so nice to send me a copy, a hard copy, which is my favorite way to read. And I had like, I don't know, a bag of popcorn and some water. And I just read all the way through. And w- what's interesting, and I bet you've had people say this to you, is one of the things you talk about is the energy inside your body, that you and your sister have an energy that doesn't match your adoptive families. It doesn't match other people's in many places. You have a thread of movement and there's a, there's a moment in the book where you see some video and you realize that this comes from your mother, that she also moved with that same kind of energy, but it's, but the book is that pace as well. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you, you take us through the people who are searching for the, for the boat. That's the beginning of sort of each chapter is where are we in the searching? Yeah. And What's so painful as a parent and as a person who's had childhood loss, what's so painful is the way in which 
there's no resolution yeah. that, that people say your family died and then other people say they didn't die. And then you and your sister decide they're in Atlantis. And there's this sort of thread of having to come to terms with something that is never fully spoken. Yeah. So, and, and the parallel of that, of you writing it all down and interviewing people very long after the fact. And even in these interviews, people are really struggling. They're having their own emotions coming up afresh and anew. Yeah. Can you just talk about what prompted you to want to write this now? Okay. So I had a poetry manuscript out and one of my professors, when I was in getting my MFA, read it and said, you know, there's something shadowing this book. There was a number of things nudging at me. And I had a friend who was a journalist and she said, if you don't write your memoir, I'm going to. <laughs> this is a great story. She's a story person. Yeah. Um, a therapist who, this Jungian therapist who said, I, I just had a number of people said, you lost your mother, you lost your family, stop. And another thing that happened was I had a writing group and I did the same thing I always did. You know, when I, when I would tell people about this loss, I lost my mother and father, my grandparents in the Bermuda Triangle, I was young, you know, they would either say, oh, you were too young to remember, yeah. or that that's pretty much what they said. And that's the message I certainly got with one family that they couldn't talk about it because they were so wrecked by it. But I was in my writing group, there was a, a woman who had whose child had leukemia and she said, stop, mm -hmm. wait a minute, I'm not, she wouldn't let me do a drive-by. And it just finally started like, I guess I need to look into this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't know anything about, hardly anything about my family and the numbness, that's the weird, one of the, the biggest losses of childhood loss is that you, you can't mourn what you don't know. So you have to go back and try and find who are, who are these people? Who is me looking in the, you know, who's looking back in the mirror? I know it has to be my mother and father. Yeah. And I wrote the first sentence, the first paragraph, it's never changed. I wrote that, that just sort of came through me yeah. and it was like, oh, there's a story. There's here. here. And, and writing, I think is very powerful and gets beneath, can get beneath your daily you know, banal stuff. And it was, and it was like, oh, I'm going to be pulled into this. I have no idea where it's going, but that's what happened. 10 years later, here I am, Megan. Right. Right. <laughs> there, there are so many moments in the book that are, I'm going to say they're like little moments, but they stopped me in my tracks. There's one where you just mentioned that your father was physically smaller than you ever imagined him to be because you find one of his naval uniforms and you put it on and it fits you. Yeah. It just blew, of course, you were 18 months old when they died. Of course, you don't physically remember they were 26, which again is just, God, babies. But But the notion that like, you know, the early childhood attachment is this ethereal, impossible thing to really fully yeah. be able to communicate, but we, but we live it. It's inside of us. And, yes. and, and it gets tamped down by the words of the people around you. Well-meaning words. Oh, well, that won't have affected you very much. You, you don't even remember them. And all of the 
pieces that you then have to construct. There's a there's another piece where you just mention the name Sarah. Your your it was your middle name. First name is my first name. And oh, was, that's right. It was your you took it back. Yes. Say was, yeah. tell that story. Yeah. So and I my great my grandmother who went down with the boat, yeah. her name was Sarah Dorothy. And it was the first time I realized I I was named after my grandmother and yes. I hadn't known that. And because no one could tell you that. There was no one to tell you. No, no. Right. Yeah. Right. It just, just it it comes in a in a, oh, you have to unearth that. Yeah. And a- I had to hire a, a detective to find out information about yeah. my mother. And, you know, well, I'm just gonna say I did a little consciousness medicine a while ago. Yeah. You know, to try and access some of that. And what I realized was I never actually had even considered that the first 18 months I had good attachment. I had yeah. a family. I had an intact family. Yeah. And I spent a good sesh part of that session smelling my mother, yeah. putting my hands on her face, yeah. listening to her voice. It was that primal. It was that, you know, and I it hadn't occurred to me that, you know, before the world felt, you know, vanished from me, I had this family. Yeah. Right. Who adored you. That's so interesting because that was one of the things that I was thinking is that I was, I was studying sensory motor psychotherapy when my son was born. Mm -hmm. And if he had been the first kid, it probably, he may have been the last kid because he was the fussiest and the hardest and, and still even now has the hardest with his body. He has asthma and allergies and all Mm -hmm. sorts of things. So he required the physicality of me to settle in a way that my other kids didn't. My other kids, you could put them in a crib and they would go to sleep. My son needed the tactile reassurance and and we would do this co-breathing when wow. he was, you know, I would take a deep breath and then let it out. And then he would sort of like do that baby thing where he would like let out all of his energy. <laughs> he would settle into my chest. Wow. I was in this training when he was, I don't know, 10 months old and they were talking about how therapists co-regulate with their clients. Ah. And and so that means sometimes you'll notice that you match their voice or that their body language or that you, you know, all the prosody or that you're nodding when they're nodding. And even if you say nothing, just holding that energy with your body is therapeutic because for many people who've had childhood trauma, they've never had that. And then they went on to say, which I'll never forget, and, and all of your attachment is sort of like formulated before the age of two. It was just like this throwaway sentence. And I was like, holy shit, that feels like a very heavy dictum for yeah. a parent. From zero to two, it's like really important that you get all this shit right. And part of the reason that was panicking for me is that my my son was sort of navigating all of these physical things that were really challenging. And I cracked open your book and was like, well, isn't this the definition of trauma in its most core way? You had the warm nest. You can actually kind of see it in this one picture of you and your sister. You know, you're in these beautiful little dresses, you're propped up, you have that relaxed baby face. Yeah. Because when you seek support, there is an attuned parent who is there for you. And then they literally disappear. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I, you know, there's a part in the book where I talk about 
Fran, who lost my stepmother, yeah. who lost her, my adoptive mother, who lost her mother and her brother, you know, she, she kind of orphaned herself. Her husband had Alzheimer's, but still she moved to the other coast at 38 years. She goes, well, I had my mother 38 years. I guess I had John 38 years. And I only realized about four months ago that my sleep issues began mm -hmm. when my son was 18 months old. And then we were living in California and Fran had moved to be close to us, to my new little family. And when my daughter was 18 months old, we moved away. Holy and I mean, it's, you know, Vessel van der Kark yeah. said the body keeps the, the body not only keeps the score, it keeps the clock. It's yeah. remarkable. It is remarkable. We, we repeat those. Yeah. That was shocking. Oh my God. That, that just gave me, that gave me chills. And again, as a reader, the story is unbelievably compelling. You do just a, the perfect amount of sort of giving us the family history you know, of, of your parents and their parents were extraordinary people to begin with. I mean, this is, these are not boring characters. These well, certainly are grandpa wasn't boring. Yeah. And who they were and, and how they lived. But part of what I found myself doing was sort of identifying with your childhood trauma mm. And almost want to, I often say this as a trauma therapist is like, when you are in trauma, you can't see past your own hands. And part of what you talk about is like you being aware of your sister, but not maybe being aware of the rest of the family that is around you, you being aware that the caretaker okay. there, yeah. right. That the yeah. caretaker there is really depressed, but not thinking about it, what it's like from Carolyn's perspective of what her burden is. And so some of this is sort of coming out for for the first time, but I also was really identifying with the adults in this family mm, yes. who don't have transcendental meditation, don't have Bessel van der Kolk, don't have a culture of talking through and knowing the sort of child development, you know, the, none of that had been invented or discussed and they have to navigate that loss. And, and their grief. They, you know, unbelievable they, grief. Yeah. And people that, you know, that generation, the greatest generation, I think I say in the book is might be emotionally foundered. They, you know, they didn't right. talk about World War II much. They didn't, this kind of thing, you know, was the elephant in the room <laughs> did not get talked about with the family that had majority custody of me, never. And then the other, you know, the other one was the, my maternal grandmother who lost her mother and her sister when she was 16 to the 1918 flu. So she was kind of wrecked to lose her daughter. And she, boy, you know, she fought for 10 years for our custody because she did not want to lose this last thing that she had. Yeah. There were just, <laughs> so, you know, for me, it's how do you unwrite a tragedy for how to, you know, grief changes your story completely. That's right just completely rewrite your story. And, you know, sometimes people are able to figure it out. I think most of us did, but not all of us. You know, so one thing, one thread that was running through my mind, because I really was thinking about attachment the mm. entire time. I've been thinking lately about this phrase, unconditional love, and because everybody talks about it. And I think about my clients, right? So I've been a trauma therapist for 20 years. And I think every single person I've worked with had an interruption in whatever unconditional love is supposed to be. Okay. 
I think every person I've ever worked with would tell you they did not, in fact, feel unconditionally loved and that the people who were loving them would say they did unconditionally love them. And so I sort of toss out that phrase. I don't think it's a useful phrase. I think more about, you know, did you have foundational attachment? Like, were you able to find secure attachment? Who was it with? And to some degree, your sister is your secure attachment because she's with you. Well, no, we were, you know, we were fighting for the same, who can we trust? Who can we trust? Right, right. So she's the person who's with you, but exactly what I was just going to say. She's the, she's the one that's right there, but you are competitors, like almost, right? It was existential. We were competitors at that level. Yeah. You, and, and which makes sense because it feels scarce, right? It feels attachment feels scarce. How could it possibly not feel scarce? What I want to ask about it is there's this moment later, it's sort of midway through the book where you have this lovely relationship with this young man, Brian. It, It almost feels like he's coloring in some of what it would look like to have secure attachment and a family and a culture and to know where you come from. And your breakup looks like this. You're at a breakfast table and you're like, well, we're probably not going to get married. And so maybe like, see you later. See you later. See you later. And and it's this moment and you say it, but it's this moment where I'm like, oh, wait a second. There (laughs) should be more. Right. There should be more. Yeah. (laughs) And again, you know, we never get to peel back the layers of the onion and understand like what are all the roads that get us to this place? But then there's a lot of movement in the story. There's a lot of, you start climbing and you start, can you just talk about those as resources, like emotional resources? I think we talk about those things as being like, well, you were avoiding maybe, but to me, those felt like resources. So can you just talk about what that period of time was? Well, you know, I ended up visiting probably 40 countries, honest to goodness. (laughs) And I'm some, you know, I knew it from my family. One thing I inherited a lot of energy and yeah, some of it was avoidance. Some of it was, I have to say, I've met very few mountaineers that don't have some trauma. Okay. I'll say that. Right. And, but you know, there's the solace of nature and there's nothing, there's nothing like it. And it, it amplified for me, it was a way that I could I was orphaned, then I orphaned myself. I orphaned myself and my sister. I ran away from the family. You know, there's that kind of modality. I think, yeah, like that. I, you know, I wanted to go back to unconditional love, yeah. which yeah. I think, you know, I, I think it might be the human condition that it's a high spiritual bar to get to unconditional love. That's but right. You can get to unconditional compassion. And I think grief is the mm. fast track to it. Can you say more about this? I, I just got chills when you just yeah. said that. Talk I, more. I, yeah, I mean, I really feel that, you know, maybe saints can do unconditional love. And and often, you know, that they are recluses. They have left their family. I'm very lucky that my son Stay is connected. Uh, staying connected and is, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we don't even unconditionally love ourselves. That's right. I mean, in fact, we're pretty freaking brutal to ourselves. That's right. There's a lot of reasons for that. I just wrote about it on my sub stack. 
the were the violence of ideals yeah. and always fall, falling but i think that you know for a long time grief when it finally when i was admitting like okay this depression is grief and maybe i have this family history i have to look into and maybe people you know i can have some help that way i mean i did therapy for many years but it it would depression was it's how it's exhibited itself besides the you know there'd be nature but i would fall into these depressive holes that were very hard to climb out of but they were also comfortable yeah they were like a quilt i could hide you know i could hide in there and what's happened now is that i can i can be the orphan archetype yeah. And I can inhabit that and I can be there for other people because in a sense, we are all going to be orphans. We will lose everyone we love right. in one way or another. And I, so now I feel like grief is the fast track to compassion. What it doesn't do, I don't end up in depression now. I use it as this, this touchstone for compassion for the human condition. And, you know, if you haven't had, it's why I love to teach people who are over 50 writing because they have a story that's they, right that's and and they usually have no arena to talk about it in I mean where where do you go with these things and that writing you know digs up things you couldn't just talk about with your mouth easily <laughs> except your therapist and even then even um, then it's tricky it is and and I feel like as a, a writing teacher I get to kind of ask them questions they never expected whereas they might come to a therapist with their story all bundled up but I do feel like it's a beautiful, it, it, grief can be this beautiful avenue, this fast track to compassion. Compassion, And, you know, luckily for me, Buddhism happens to be my chosen religion now. And, you know, the Buddha talks about pain, grief, lamentation, despair. Right. <laughs> you know, that you are going to, that you will lose. We Life is full of loss and beauty but full of loss. And so it's not, I have a community that can hold loss for each other. And it's not this like, oh my God, how did it ever, how could this ever happen? Which so many people seem so shocked. And yeah. I'm sure it's a shock. I would be so shocked if I lost my husband, but I would have people there saying what full of compassion and you know, that this is, this is the condition of life. I, I deeply appreciate what you just said, which is, you know, that, well, the, the nugget that made me smile is that people over 50 have stories to tell and, and they need a place to tell them that I, that I think essentially what you're saying is you live enough years on the planet and you're going to have experienced loss, if not process the loss. And I love this idea that grief is sort of like a, a conduit, a water slide or a tunnel. That if you, if you really go all the way through it, you get to show up for the human condition. Yeah. Um, and you may not go all the way through it. You may end up in a different land. That's right. Things, That's it's right. You're in a different land and it's the land of compassion. Yeah. But I, but I do think what, I, what I'm thinking about is people who come to me mm -hmm. and they're still in the trauma. So, yeah. so they still can't see past their own hands. And so they are not compassionate. And, and I had this experience after my mom died. I did not want anyone to expect anything or want anything from me. I really just needed to move through my own feelings. And 
the way that I experienced that, which actually you have some of it in your book was like, I wanted to either go away from everyone or everyone to go away from me. And I did that with anger actually, because that was the best mechanism was to sort of be angry at everybody. But the grieving, the, the ING, the verb of grief sort of shifts that it transforms how it feels in the body. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, when you talk about the energy inside your body, that's there the whole time, which sounds like it's probably something genetic, but may also have been what it's like to be handed a watermelon of grief at 18 months. Right. And you're just meant to carry that inside your body for the rest of your life. But you begin these treks, you begin these high climbs, you begin this movement, and it's in these vast places across all these countries, and you, you know, make it your work. And to me, what that feels like is, without maybe doing it, in t- it, fe- it begins to feel like the, the start of a spiritual practice. Absolutely. Right? So I'm wondering if you can, you could say a little bit about how you came to be a meditation teacher, someone who studies Buddhism. How does that, how does that dovetail into feeding the loss or the grief? You might have to bring me back around to the very last part of that question. But you know, when I was 16, Nobody was telling the truth. There was this one family that wouldn't even talk about the accident. There was the other family that would only talk about the ass- accident, but would say they killed my daughter. That those people they killed my daughter. Right. And and what I saw was that people couldn't deal. People couldn't deal with tragedy. And something actually that my son said to me when he was sixteen. I don't think you adults have this suffering thing figured out. <laughs> Very wise. Right. And so I left home a seeker right away. And, and, you know, I studied religion, religious studies was my degree. And I was an Aikido teacher for a long time, which was had a spiritual aspect to it, but was still just a pseudo religion. And when our kid, when, when my son was born, we were in the Bay area, which is this great place to like, well, I think I'll, you know, we wanted to find a religion more than jelly bean trails for Easter. And we were, I grew up in Presbyterian church, which my friend, my Jewish friend jokes is God's frozen people. Nobody talked about, even though you, you know, you have Jesus on the, you know, like suffering on the cross. Like you don't talk about suffering. <laughs> I would go to with my Jewish friends to their temples, just so I could hear the, the beauty of, of a lamenting kind of music and that kind of thing. So, you know, I took off early on as a seeker and then when we were in the Bay Area and before, like, well, well how are we going to raise our kids? And, uh, you know, we tried a bunch of churches and the Unitarians and the, oh, the, a bunch of them. And since I had studied religion, I had, I was tuned into Buddhism too. And one of the best, one of the really most famous Buddhist teachers opened up a, a center, the Insight, Insight Meditation Society, right down the street from us. And so Doug took the kids one night and I went there and I came back. I said, I found what we've been looking for. So, and, you know, you know, he was a philosophy major. I was religious studies and Buddhism doesn't press dogma on you. It, it asks you to invent it's forward leading with your own investigation. And so my, you know, the, my son took to it quite well. We did a lot of like Buddhism light with the kids, my daughter, (laughs) completely rebelled. So funny. 
<laughs> like would ask. I love like, that. I, oh, I know. It's great. You know, she, she just like, don't tell people we're Buddhists. You're wrecking my social life. <laughs> And so funny. And, you know, she would sit at the table and go, you know, I'm adopted. I, like, I'm not deep, okay? <laughs> Which, of course, shows a great, great right. piece of self-reflection. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and then it just became more, it's the kind of thing that became more important as time went on because I never found anything that I didn't find true. And, 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 and it comes with a praxis. I mean, I love all religions, but I love the Buddhist praxis and the study of the mind and the heart. You know, what, what's interesting, first of all, thanks for that answer, because I, I love it. And I'm, I'm always, I'm always thinking about the sort of areas in our, in our worlds that get impacted as we begin to feel our grief. Like for some people, it's their central nervous system and it's their physical body that, you know, takes the biggest hit. And so they have inflammation and they go to doctors and for other people, it's their interpersonal relationships or their, you know, but there is this one that goes sort of almost unspoken, even in grief, which is your spiritual, the spiritual piece that for some people they lose their, they lose their sense of there being any sort of benevolent, you know, and that's such a secondary loss. It's such a crisis to be like, well, you know, how could God have let my child die? And then for other people, they suddenly see meaning and they feel a presence or they feel drawn to a curiosity around the idea of something organizational. And we kind of talk about it and then we don't talk about it. And, and, in hmm. my world as a therapist, I'm always saying to people, listen, you just have to come up with, a, you know, your own grief traditions, your own practice for grief, which is, you know, your own spiritual practice, your own yoga practice, your own soccer practice. But what are your re- traditions and rituals going to be? And we never find them right away. You have to try. It's a hypothesis. But I'm very interested, really, when I'm guiding people and I'm asking people, you know, what do they want to do because there's usually trauma, they don't know how to answer that question. Right. And so instead what we say is what feels possible and where is there some curiosity and what do you lean towards? Right. What opens your heart? What opens your heart? And I think we don't in the grief world talk enough about Mm -hmm. the need to feel little in the giant vastness of the world that, that, that sounds maybe scary, but the more and more grievers that I talk to, that is a yearning is to feel held maybe in a safe way that, that, that they never needed before by the bigness of call it what you want, the universe, God, the planet, quantum physics. I don't really care. But I think you do such a beautiful job starting at age 16 of exploring that and writing about it and talking about it in a self-identifying kind of way rather than, oh, I ran away from all my relationships. I was marred by this terrible trauma. You write about it in this very and both delicate, beautiful way. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I had a good time. I mean, I love movement. 
I love dance. I love, uh, you know, it's intox. Speed is intoxicating. Any guy with a, you know, pumped up car can tell you <laughs> pedals on that. <laughs> Something about speed is really fun. I had a good time with all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is interesting. Like I, I do have a friend who lost her husband suddenly a year ago. And my husband and I discovered him by the side of the road. He on, uh, was on his bike. We were going to go for a big bike ride the next day. And, you know, she had been part of a Christian cult long ago and it wrecked any yeah. spiritual. She, I mean, that was the biggest tragedy also is that she doesn't know how to do this next. And it's, and I don't think we, I'm sure you know this, I don't think we do well in ambiguity. Yeah. And and that's still hard for me. Like there are things that trigger me. Like we sold our home three years ago. Well, we sold our home two years ago, but we upended our lives about four years ago because my husband was just like languishing, like on the retired yeah. on the computer. Like this is not life, not a life. But we neither of us anticipated what a trigger would be for me to be set adrift. Oh my God. It's humbling. It's totally it's, humbling. It's so humbling all the, you know, underneath it all. And it's, and I lucked out with both of, you know, Brian and Doug of people who were incredibly trustworthy and still took me a long time to trust. Yeah. 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 I think that is also maybe the legacy of trauma is that you need to titrate and take small bites in order yeah. to you know, to secure safety and that things can feel like a risk that maybe wouldn't seem like a risk from the outside. And yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about, you know, how do you see spirituality and therapy that, you know, in, in the Buddhist world view, they're a little bit different, but yeah. for you, how do you, how do you steer people, you know, help them find a spiritual foundation to hold them? Well, you know, it's, that's a great question. And it's probably one I'll answer imperfectly. Cause I feel like I'm, I'm swimming around in this pond right now. I'm really a believer of whatever helps you helps you. And <laughs> I've, I've been a therapist for 20 some odd years. And so if you'd asked me when I had been a therapist for six years, I would have recited all the things I had read and been told and I feel very differently having trained in trauma. There's a lot of trauma work that we don't really understand I bet. why it works. Yeah. And one of the practices that I employ, that I believe in, that I do with myself is internal family systems, which is Dick Schwartz's work. And all I can tell you, I've never said this out loud before, but all I can tell you is I can feel when it's going to work. Yeah. And I have chills just saying that I'm very somatic as a person. And so I, I have learned since my dad died six years ago, that all of the truth is inside my body. That doesn't mean it's your truth. It's my truth, but I can feel it. And it, and it makes me run cold. It's always been there, but I'm much more attuned. Yeah. And in IFS work, there is a trauma that has left inside you like a tattoo, a limiting belief you know, that that's not what they call it, but it's a structure that is stopping you from being able to do novel relationships and things and take risks. And I can feel inside my body. It comes like a, like an air, like a wind when we're going to shift it out of their bodies. 
Cool. <laughs> it is super cool. And I've had multiple mentors sort of say to me like, hey, that's got a kind of shaman vibe, you know, like you've got this. So, Maybe so. so all I know is I am always asking people if they would like to try to co-create some hope. Mm. And that to me is spirituality. You know, grief is so alone. Yes. Because it is, because it's yours alone, but that does not mean it has to be existentially alone. It should never be existentially alone because it is literally the thing that universally connects us. We will all, we will all grieve. I heard Colin Campbell, who's finding the words, he said, it's this quote of like, actually, it's not so much that all our grief is unique, which left him feeling isolated, but that our ways of avoiding grief are completely unique. Right. It's <laughs> a great line. Right. Um, I think the curiosity piece is great. And you said something else, co-create. Oh, hope. Yeah. I think in, in, in my religion, we call that refuge. Mm, you call that refuge. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. I haven't heard that before. No one's told me that before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think we're always talking about the same things with different language, which is kind of what each religion yeah. does is talks, you know, talks about the same thing with different language. I want to before we go, I I want to ask you this because I had an experience with your book. You write the word orphan over and over and over in the book orphan and chapters, little orphan chapters, all by them little selves. There, I mean, again, the structure, like just so much, I could sit and geek out on the writing forever. I was probably 200 pages in and was like, oh, I'm an orphan because both my parents have died. And now listen, my parents died when I was a grown up, and, and, but I was not identifying with that piece of the story. I identified with so many other things, even though the content is not the same, the feelings are the same. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I am in this story. Yeah. Wow. Can you just say right before you go, what is the meaning of that word that you so you spend so much time with in your book to you these days? Well, you know, the article I did for Tricycle Magazine, I, I wanted to call it, We Are All Orphans. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, who if belonging is one of our greatest needs, what's the other side of that? What it's the other side of the coin, really. And I think it's a, you know, yeah, there's, you can be an, you can be an orphan as a noun, but you also, it's one of the ways, unfortunately, we deal with our emotional life, things we don't want. Yeah. Don't want in our lives and our emotions in ourselves. Like the, we were talking a little bit about how, how hard we are on ourselves and it's rampant that what Tara Brock calls the trance of unworthiness. We are orphaning things in ourselves all the time. It's just, yeah, it's the push away thing. So to me, it's, it's unfortunately a very, with our kind of kooky society of racing and so fractured, our times fractured that, and people not feeling like they belong. This is, it's the other side of that coin that we have to ignore, you know, how do we find How do we belong again to our lives and to each other? Some of the inner child work I did just after my mom died had to do with things that were really painful, what seemed to be painful just in childhood, you know, a bad event that happened to something where I was scared or alone. 
what I've come to understand in going back to those moments as an adult and showing up for the little kid as a loving adult is the way in which those things, when we leave them, when we orphan them, when we abandon them, then begin a narrative of meaning. Yes. Right. And that, that, so when you're talking about this, I'm just thinking, gosh, like, like, the orphan component is it is the opposite of maybe the spiritual, the larger spiritual connection of feeling held. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think these mm. Canadians did some studies like two thirds of children's movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. It's real. Yeah. Kids are obsessed with it. <laughs> and, and, I and could, talk, really to it. Yeah. The I could talk to you about this all day. Yeah, I, it's a pleasure. It's fun. I have, I just, there's so much beautiful wisdom and uh, just the, the writing. I know I said it like five times, but you, you take us just so gently there and in the structure, you know, you let us, you let us float in it with you. And it's just a really, really special book. I hope it gets tons of attention. I hope you have lots of meaningful conversations about it. And I will be listening to those. I'm going to remind readers that we will have a bunch of copies. So if you, for some reason, can't get your hands on your own, get in touch with us. We will send you a copy of Sarah's book. Good luck with everything. Thank you so much for sharing. It was awesome to be with you. Thank you for this. Thanks, Sarah. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey folks, just a quick reminder. If you are enjoying Grief is My Side Hustle, if you could head over to the Apple podcast page and leave us a five-star review and maybe even a couple of encouraging words. That would be so helpful. Mostly what it does is help other people who Google the word grief into podcasts that they're searching for get a chance to know about our podcast and what we're doing here. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it.